Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Heavenly Father, we are indeed glad to be together, glad to once again be able to come and and be in the flesh with one another and in your presence together. Uh, We're thankful for those who are tuning in online. We recognize that we are living in a world that is in desperate need of you, and we are people who desperately need you in the deep places of our lives. I'm thankful for Gary and Bev for that incredible testimony of humility, of gentleness, of stepping into the brokenness of our world and being there as a learner and someone who is seeking to incarnate your presence and your love. I pray for uh, your goodness to be upon them as they continue to seek after you. May we learn from people like Bev and Gary. May we learn the way of humility and may we experience the goodness of your kingdom. We Begin this time as we open your word. We ask that you would speak to us. We pray for the gentleness of the Spirit to be our teacher. We pray for humility as we hear, for openness, that you will take us where we need to go. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I am a big fan of the great British baking show. I hope some of you are fans of that. Yes, indeed. If you're not familiar with it, I strongly recommend you become familiar with it. A bunch of amateur bakers convene in a big white tent pitched on a beautiful and serene English property complete with grazing sheep every now and then. And for several weeks under the direction of the judges, they compete to see who is the best baker of the bunch. And as the weeks go by, Bakers fall off and are asked not to come back. But without getting into it, the show has a quality to it that feeds my soul and revives my hope for humanity. I was watching it the other night, and I noticed something obvious. It was very obvious. But I noticed something obvious that happens every single episode. Every show, without exception, if you watch it, you know this, the bakers present their creations to the judges, and the judges first look at these creations, and they comment on their appearance, the appearance of the cake or the pie or whatever it is. But every single time, with no exceptions, eventually they cut into the creation to see what is on the inside. Sometimes they cut into it literally with a knife, so they will cut a piece out and then they'll cut it in half. Other times, they just bite into it, so they cut it with their teeth. But they always cut into the baked item to see the inside and, of course, to taste it. And it's fascinating because sometimes these things literally are worthy of a museum. They're a piece of art to look at. But when the judges finally cut into them, they're too dry or they're undercooked or they're overcooked or there's too much ginger or there's not enough mint, or the cherry overwhelms the chocolate. Other times, they present their baked end product, and the thing is a mess to look at. It's really unfinished. But the judges kind of hang in there, and they eventually take the knife, and they cut into this thing. And sometimes, even though they don't look so great, they are perfectly cooked, and they are bursting with 
heavenly flavors. What it looks like is one thing. But the ultimate test is when they cut into it and find out what is on the inside. We started a series this past Ash Wednesday night, a series I am rather excited about and passionate about, and it is called A Radiant Life. Psalm 34, 5 says, Those who look to God are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. How interesting. Those who look to God are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. How often we look to other people, how often we look to other religious people, and for various reasons, our faces are completely covered with shame. But those who look to God are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. It's interesting how David in this psalm integrates the dimensions of the physical part of who we are and the spiritual part of who we are. Those who look to God, those who orient to God are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. In one short sentence, David joins the spiritual and the physical, the soul with the body, the inside with what's on the outside. We are now in the season of Lent, and from now until the end of the Easter season, we're going to talk about what it looks like for us as individual followers of Jesus and as a community of Jesus to have a radiant life, to be transformed on the inside. So we grow in radiance and emit the light of Christ and the goodness of the kingdom in our everyday lives. Like the great British baking show, this series then is about what's inside. What's there when we're cut into? And how Jesus, through his spirit and through our cooperation with him, wants to move into those deep dimensions of ourself and transform us to be more like him. See, human beings have various interrelated dimensions. A heart or will, as the Bible calls it, where choices are made. We have thoughts. We have Feelings, they are part of our self. And these thoughts and these feelings and these choices get expressed through our physical bodies. And we're also relational. And our life in many ways is centered on relationships with God and with each other. We all have personalities and we have personality tendencies. We have pain management strategies. We have desires that are deep within us and we have wounds that are deep within us, and all of this comprises me, and it comprises you, and it comprises we as a community. Life with Jesus is about giving him the key to every door in every dimension of ourself, our will, our thoughts, our feelings, our bodies, our relationships, our pains from the past, our wounds we carry, the past, the present, the future. Now, we don't give the key to every door all at once instantaneously. And we don't invite Jesus into these things because we have to or because we should. But because radiance, goodness, real life is found when we surrender our whole selves to him. Over the past year, COVID has cut into us. The political climate of the past several years has cut into us. Not getting what we want in our individual lives 
always cuts into us. Disappointment cuts into us. And when we are cut into, we find out what's really there. Now, I offer what I'm about to say as merely my opinion from my perspective as a pastor, and obviously you are free to disagree with this. I'm sure that this opinion is jaded by my own brokenness and by my own untransformed interior life. But COVID and the political climate and not getting what we want and disappointment, in my opinion, have revealed an overcooked, dry, and flavorless inside of the Christian community, generally speaking. It's not a good bake, we might say. And this compels me to want to keep calling us to humility and surrender that we might experience authentic transformation, transformation in Christ-likeness in the deepest places of our whole selves. But why, we may wonder. What's the point of that? Why do we always talk about that? Why does it always, one way or another, end up back at this point? Once in a while, it's good for us to ask the bigger questions. What is God ultimately up to in me? What is he ultimately up to in you? What is he ultimately up to in us as a congregation? Why do we do this? Why are we in this? What is God ultimately up to in the world? It seems to me at the front end of this series, it's good for us to ask the question, what is it all about? What is this for? Where is God ultimately leading history? Personal bliss? Maybe sins are forgiven. We get to have an eternity with God where there's no more heartache and there's no more pain. Yes, that's certainly part of the story, but it is a chapter in the story. It is by no means the whole story. See, the whole story is that God is ultimately in the process of restoring you and restoring me and restoring all of, the, all of creation to be the way he originally intended you and me and it to be. That's the big story. God is in the process of bringing his goodness and his grace and his healing and his flourishing, his shalom into every square inch of this broken universe. Eden restored. You can read this in Revelation 21 through chapter 22, 5, when it all is restored. A new heaven and a new earth. Or in Revelation 21, 5, Jesus' words, I am making everything new. That project is now underway. That's the whole big story. And here's the stunning news. You're in that story. And I'm in that story. And we as a congregation are in that story. And we each individually and as a community have a role to play in that story. Dallas Willard writes and says it this way, and you can see this on the screen. He says, the impotence of systems is a main reason why Jesus did not send his students out to start governments or even churches as we know them today, which always strongly convey some elements of a human system. They were instead to establish beachheads of his person, word, and power in the midst of a failing and futile humanity. 
They were to bring, bring the presence of the kingdom and its king into every corner of human life simply by fully living in the kingdom with him. See, our lives and relationships and jobs and vocations and ministries as individuals and as a local church exist to announce and manifest and demonstrate the new Jesus is in the process of making. And we do this by letting him have us more fully and more holistically so that I and you and we radiate his goodness and grace and life in this world to demonstrate to others who God is and what life is supposed to be like. And if you want to whittle this all down, what are we doing? What are we all about? What is this for? Why does Oak Hills exist? What is this business of transformation? That's it. That we might manifest individually and as a church the goodness, the grace, and the healing that God wants to bring. And here's the thing, again, my opinion. I don't think the Christian community has done a very good job at this. In fact, I think there is a pandemic of unhealthy spirituality that has infected the Christian community. And today, specifically, I want to talk about three characteristics of this unhealthy spirituality. They masquerade as strong faith in Christ, but they do more harm than good. They do not radiate his life, <clears throat> and yet we get sucked into these things, and we need to turn from them. And the genesis of this bad bake, this overcooked, underflavored interior of the Christian community is lack of genuine transformation in the deep places. Let me say it this way. Faith, Christianity, religion, whatever term works for you, is toxic and even malignant when it is pulled over things like rejection in an important relationship, or trauma in early childhood, or abandonment where that abandonment continues to echo in us, or shame over whatever reason, for whatever reason, or guilt, or anger, or fear, or sadness. When Christianity is just pulled over the top of these things as though it's somehow going to, by osmosis, eradicate these things, it often becomes toxic and it often becomes malignant because the point is for Jesus to descend into these things and slowly and gradually and gently transform them. Now, this message is going to probably hit a bit uh, at times. This is not, I want you to know, me aiming at you or me aiming at our church in particular. I trust you know this about me. I am, in the words of the song, gracefully broken. I desperately need Jesus in these deep places I am talking about. One of the reasons I think this comes up so much is because I need it so much. And I know this sounds like a tactic to pull you in, but it's not a tactic. It's absolutely true. So I'm speaking to myself here. Let me say it this way. I demonstrate all three characteristics of this unhealthy spirituality, and I need Jesus' help to change me. So with that, if you would stand for our scripture reading. 
Today it comes from Luke chapter 18. It gets right to the heart of the matter as we think about unhealthy spirituality. I'm going to be reading Luke chapter 18, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. This is from the New International Version. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I'm going to jump right in. The first characteristic of what I'm calling unhealthy spirituality is acting religious. Luke 18, verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. One manifestation of an unhealthy spirituality is acting religious. We could call it externalism. You've been around this, you've smelled this, you've sensed this, You've been in the presence of this. It is religious duty without any soul. It's Bible verses used as weapons or neosporin. It's a faith of believing certain things. But it's mostly in that belief, it's mostly a head game. It's a faith of doing certain things and avoiding certain other things. But it's just a surface level morality. It's acting religious. It's looking religious. But when you cut into it, it's a bad bake. Matthew 5 and verse 20, the beginning of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. And he says these astounding words to people who would have heard it and thought, he can't be serious. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He means many things by this, but one of the things he means is, unless your righteousness gets down in you and actually changes you. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of those who can do it on the surface, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 23 and 28, he again goes after these Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. On the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside... You're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Wow, that looks like a nice cake. Let's cut into it. Hypocrisy and wickedness. Dallas Willard said these words, The perceived distance and difficulty of entering fully into the divine world and its life is due entirely to our failure to understand that the way in is the way of pervasive inner transformation and to our failure to take the small steps that quietly and certainly 
lead to it. So it's not about, for sure, acting religious or doing religious things. It's about Holy Spirit-crafted change beneath the surface, in the deepest dimensions, thoughts, feelings, will, choices, relationships of our human self. Over time, as we partner with the Spirit, the new, Jesus is in the process of bringing forth, becomes our reality. I had the occasion this week to have a series of meetings with people for various reasons. And two of these meetings struck me deeply because they were with people who, and these were their words, they were with people who 15, 20 years ago were different people. And I knew them then. I knew one of them back then, the other one not so much. But what they described to me, independent of each other, just in the course of talking, they described to me how back then, and then they described themselves as angry, rigid, um, mean, narcissistic, and a series of other not-so-good qualities. And they said, and you know, and this was not stated as a brag, but this was stated just in humility. They said, you know, that's not, I'm not that person anymore. That's what we mean by cut into it and what's there, and all of a sudden you see the fruit of a long process in transformation. Deep interior alterations instead of just acting religious. The second characteristic of unhealthy spirituality, and this is probably going to get a little more difficult, is the characteristic of being right. A spirituality of needing to be right. Somewhere along the way within the Christian community, being right about moral issues or theological issues or political issues became more important than having genuinely good and Christ-like character. Winning the argument became more important than compassion and mercy. This has nothing to do with whether or not in certain moral issues and theological issues and political issues that there is a right and there is a wrong. It's got nothing to do with that. It has to do with how that gets handled and it has to do with this obsession to be right and the way in which spirituality can become about being right. See, there is a brand of Christian spirituality very much alive in today's world where taking a stand on various moral and social issues is handled in a way that degrades and belittles those who don't agree and don't, don't comply. So instead of being agents of God's genuine goodness and shalom in this world, we become enforcers of what's right and enforcers of what's wrong. Enforcers of what's moral and enforcers of what's immoral. But we sometimes take these stands and enforce these positions in immoral and unlike Christ ways. And this was the group Jesus was directing this parable at in Luke chapter 18. He says, to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down <clears throat> on everyone else. I'm right, you're wrong. Therefore, I get to obliterate you and demean you and disregard you. Christians across the spectrum of politics, theology, and any other category you want to include often stand up on their high moral ground and they berate and they belittle those who don't agree. And this goes from Christians on the right toward those on the left, and it goes from Christians on the left toward those on the right. The quest to be right, the need to be right, 
is a dreadfully unhealthy spirituality. There's a theologian at Fuller Seminary I have appreciated for many years. Her name is Erin Default Hunter, and she wrote an article. Here's the title of the article. Being right can be wrong. Why Christian ethics is more about enacting the beautiful than about taking a stand. I mean, the title is invaluable. And it's worth pondering the next time you're on the verge of an argument with your spouse. Think about it. Being right can be wrong. Why Christian ethics is more about enacting the beautiful than taking a stand. Upholding morality in immoral ways does more damage than good. And angry rhetoric and belittling and dismissing and degrading and all of their insidious forms is immoral. And it's pharisaical. This theologian, Aaron Default Hunter, says it this way, and this is on the screen, and you can follow along. She writes, My society and some of our churches are sickened with a disease masquerading as moral uprightness. We sever ties with others because we cannot bear to be with someone who holds that view or articulates themselves so insensitively or ignorantly. We are choking on our own platitudes. Worse, we are strangling others with them. Yes, other Christians, but even more distressingly, unbelievers who amidst the sludge of public discourse and the slog of consumerism seek good news, something so wondrous and surprising that it can drag them out of the current pit of divisiveness. Ethics as posturing makes us ugly. It malforms us as humans. And I would say an unhealthy spirituality of being right, as you well know, fosters an attitude of arrogance, superiority, incivility, dismissiveness. It's pharisaical at its core. To pull it right out of the passage, I thank you that I am not like these other people, not like these unenlightened ones. And remember, the Pharisee in Jesus' day was highly respected by the people, or at least the mystery of who they were and what they did and why on earth they did it distanced them from the common folk and the distance authored a fairy tale in the minds of the common folk and in the minds of the Pharisees about who these Pharisees were on the inside and Jesus routinely and strategically obliterated these delusions. See, it is impossible to be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. Say it this way, we will never grow up in Christ if our emotional self is eight years old. If I pout for more than a minute or two when I don't get what I want, then I'll never make much headway in becoming spiritually mature. And this obsession to be right, I think, is often a sign of emotional immaturity. Julie and I have had, I think at last count, it was one or two conflicts in our 30 years of marriage. Something like that. And many times, she offers her version of what happened, I offer my version of what happened, and neither of us is listening to the other. We're not all that interested in the other's version because the goal is to be right. And the quest to be right is the energy that keeps the conflict going. And it is dreadfully unhealthy. And we could sit here till 8.30 and I could tell you stories of the unhealth that has emanated in our marriage 
because of this propensity to be right. And again, I think the Christian community as a whole has given in to the temptation of being right regardless of how we do it or what it costs, and I think it's cost us a bunch. Aaron Default Hunter, in a series they did at Fuller where they asked these professors to each give what, what they would consider to be their last lecture. You can actually go in the app, you'll see a link to the full article. I would highly recommend you read it. She's more articulate than I am, so I'm gonna use her words to confess my sin, and maybe it will confess yours as well. She writes this. The truth is that I am these disciples, standing at the sideline, snarking about what other people are doing wrong or worse, given my outspokenness and personality, rebuking others with little awareness or sensitivity. I've done this in private, dressing down friends or pastors whose actions I thought immoral. I've done this in public, writing on Facebook, or challenging people in meetings. To be clear, this is a part of my role in the body of Christ. God help me. I am a passionate extrovert made to press the envelope by asking questions and pushing boundaries. These gifts are meant to be just that, gifts for the upbuilding of others for our common life, but they must always be offered through my devotion to Christ, a risky act of loving Christ by speaking truthfully or with truth as I perceive it. Though Jesus went vulnerable and unarmed to the cross, I come out with verbal guns ablazing, energized by the cocksureness of my ethical position. Like the disciples here, I have skipped over the question of how to connect my life to Jesus in this particular moment. Instead, I have grasped principles like always speak truth to power without asking, how do I do this? So I trust in the force of Jesus' reign and rightness and not in my own. How can I do this in a way that points others to see that ethics is always about the God of Israel, that I am also called to woo people by pointing to the wonder of God's goodness? How do I resist the temptation to make this an exercise in Aaron's cleverness or proclamation of my own courageous stance? I can even make hostility to my truth-telling into a badge of pride. I sometimes chew on these rebukes as evidence of my prophetic voice, a poor diet that leaves me, and I suspect many others, bitter and disdainful. I mean, that's like someone jumped down inside of me, grabbed a notebook, looked on the walls of my inner world, and wrote a bunch of notes. That just grabs it. And you know as well as I do <clears throat> that the Christian community in general has made an obsession out of being right and belittling everybody who doesn't agree. And it is an unhealthy spirituality. Last characteristic of this unhealthy spirituality is judging others. Luke 18, 11, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I mean, is this not piercing the way that it gets to us because we all know we have a similar thought? Judging others might be the primary characteristic of an unhealthy spirituality. My righteousness is derived 
from your wrongness. So it's not real righteousness. It's not inner righteousness. Judgment is the default of those who have not ventured into their own depths and been honest about what they've discovered on the journey. That's next week's story, so I'll leave it till then. Luke 18, verse 13 and 14. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. you got to jump into the shoes of someone who's hearing Jesus say this for the first time. Pharisees were highly respected. They were the religious superstars. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth. The Pharisee is the one who had the direct line to God. The tax collector was the one that God had long ago abandoned. And here Jesus says, but this raw, broken, humble tax collector who wouldn't even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He, that guy, went home justified, not this righteous tool over here. See, the tax collector, the robber, the evildoer, the adulterer may be closer to the kingdom than the self-proclaimed Christian or the self-proclaimed righteous Christian because the tax collector and the robber and the evildoer and the adulterer knows they are a tax collector and a robber and an evildoer and an adulterer. And at least in the case of this tax collector, he is grieved by who he is. The character qualities of humility and surrender, then, are essential in this series. If I were to sit back and say, so what are we trying to do? You know what we're trying to do here? We're trying to step deeper into humility and deeper into surrender. See, if the great British baking show judges were to cut into us and they found humility and they found surrender, then we would be well on our way to a very good bake. So we need to keep returning to these things. Humility, surrender, brokenness, or if you please, the way of the tax collector, because that's our path to new life and freedom and joy. That's the way to a radiant life. That's the way to a good bake. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful again to be able to be together And we want to be people who are experiencing you in the depths because it is from the depths that we actually live and make choices and think and feel and relate. We live from our depths, so we need our depths transformed, changed by your Holy Spirit and the power that he brings at work in us. So I pray that through the time we have here, through our journey together, that there would be an awakening of your easy and light yoke. 
because your yoke is the way to freedom. Your yoke is the way to radiance. Your yoke is the way to the new life that we were meant to live. And so we pray and we ask you to be at work in our midst, to be at work in the deep places and to continue to teach us and transform us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.